0: Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. This is a podcast where I talk to creative folks, try to see how their memory influences their work. Today, I'm wildly excited to be presenting this conversation that I had with the amazing Johnny Marr. Johnny, of course, first became known as the guitar player and founder of the Smiths, but he's been a part of an incredible amount of other music and bands. Electronic, the, the Modest Mouse, the Cribs, his own solo career, and a ton more. It's astounding how much he's been a part of, and he shows no sign of slowing down. Just recently, he published a book called Mars Guitars, which tells some of his story through photographs of his guitar collection. There's also a new record called Spirit Power, which has a few new singles alongside some highlights from the four solo records he's done in the last decade or so. Johnny's work ethic seems unrivaled. Everything he does is interesting, soulful, and exciting. This really is a dream guest for me few notes before we start. In our conversation, I referenced an event that I'd attended a few days previous to our talk. It was a live interview about the new book held at Warsaw in Brooklyn, New York. Some of my questions are kind of a follow-up to the ones asked there. Also, I referenced Johnny's awesome 2016 memoir, Set the Boy Free, quite a bit. I recommend that book because it's pretty awesome. He's got so many great stories. Johnny Mars has a certain zealot quality to him. He's been around so much of the great rock and roll for the past 40 years. He's played in The Pretenders. Billy Duffy from The Cult was his childhood friend. Kirsty McCall was his landlord. I couldn't fit it all in this talk because there's so much. But I'm so excited to have Johnny Marr on the show. And here he is And That's How I Remember It. Johnny Marr, thanks so much for joining us on That's How I Remember It. It's an honor. And uh, I start all these podcasts out with the same question, which is this. Do you think you're someone who has a good memory?
1: Yeah, I have a a really good memory. I discovered that because I wrote a memoir, autobiography, whatever, in 2016. I was helped a little bit with that project because my wife had kept some diaries from a while ago, but um, not from not for for everything and uh yeah i do have a good memory
0: yeah did you you know when i when i read that um i i've been talking to a lot of people and a lot of people say they they remember shows pretty well but not recording sessions and i felt like in your book you had really went into great detail about specific sessions do you think were those from diaries
1: or do you do you just remember that stuff well no it's not from diaries i remember that stuff because it's It is very important to me, and was very important to me, but and also because in ninety nine percent of the time I was the producer, so and it's part of the producer's job to be organised and you know to imagine things before they happen because that saves an awful lot of time, Uh, and um, and then from I guess the late eighties so with electronic. And and since then, the studios have always been owned by me. I've been very fortunate to have my own place even back in the day. I, you know, I was very, I guess, comprehensive. I made sure my studios always had track sheets with our logo on. So that side of things, the organisational side, including writing down everything that was on the songs, uh, was, was just part of my mentality.
0: Do you remember individual shows well, or do, do they mash together after a while? Or
1: they kind of merge together, really. I, I remember, I remember key some really key events, like The Smiths playing at the Beacon, um, me getting into an altercation with a very, very scary security guy. <laughs> um, shows that I went to as a kid, how, you know, who I was with when I um, when, when I, I snuck in those shows, or um, yeah, I've got a pretty, pretty vivid recall for these things. I tend to uh, attach quite a lot of significance and meaning to certain events, even whilst they're happening. And what has amazed me about writing two autobiographical books is that quite often when I was attaching significance to things as they were happening, basically this is a big moment turns out that I, I was right.
0: So yeah, one of the things I've been talking about it Senses and uh, Memories, and in, in Set the Boy Free, you talk about colors, and, and you have, I think, a wildly named school teacher, if I believe Mrs. Cocaine, uh, yeah. said, you know, colors make you feel different things, you said to her. And I'm wondering, yeah. do you still have those emotional responses to color? And uh, the other night when they put up the uh, the page with all the Les Pauls, it was the first thing I thought of is, you know, how, how colors... Are a big part of electric guitars. Do you still think you have feel that more than others?
1: Well, I was uh, I was in London last week, and uh, it was a really beautiful late afternoon. And I was walking down the street with my daughter, and a woman, young woman who was looked like she was looking forward to going out for the evening, walked towards me with the most amazing pair of gold shoes on and it was a very specific but very particular light very light color gold as, as i said to my daughter oh uh, that that's one of the colors i did my bike I, I love those moments to do with colors um they don't dominate my life but they obviously you know that was as recent as a week ago or something <laughs> uh, and it it hit they hit me in a way that, I have to say that music doesn't, but what, you know, scant uh, knowledge I have of frequencies uh, and metaphysics, I think what I'm sort of touching on as as I understand it is reaction to frequencies because obviously light colour operates on really, really uber-fast frequencies. And obviously, we know, you'll know, being a musician, that sound and music operates on frequencies also. Sure. So we're reacting to to that. There there is a theory that um, our love of precious stones and precious metals is to do with the frequencies that they are emitting, that we're not really that conscious that we're reading, and that... um, in other dimensions, see, I'm off here. He goes. Um, That's great. The other dimensions might be entirely uh, made up of some, those kind of frequencies that we are aware that we are aware of uh, and are relating to. So, so, vibrations. It's all all to do with the speed of vibrations.
0: Speaking of vibrations, I know you talked about in your book, and the other night you talked about growing up in a house. With music and rock and roll, your parents, you know, were young and had cool stuff. You talk about Eddie Cochran. What what was the first music that was yours, like that wasn't your parents that was like
1: all yours? Mark Boland and T Rex, hundred percent, hundred percent. Not just because it was glamorous and it was rocking and it was in the charts, but it was also kind of like had a kind of dark vibe as well. He was, was the whole he was the whole deal for me Boland because he was number one in the pop charts. But some of that, you listen to some of that Tyrannosaurus Rex stuff. It's it, it isn't it, it isn't silly. It isn't silly pop music. It's not trite. No, it's uh, was was
0: Mata Hoople a, a band for you?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, they, all the young dudes was like an anthem for my generation.
0: What you know? You, you said something the other night at the event about the Cribs being a street band. I was wondering what that means to you, and I wondered if Mata Hoople's a street band
1: whoa yeah well to people guys usually who were a few years older than me uh, in the 70s that's exactly the appeal of not the hoople mm-hmm. from what i understand because i liked them to, as a pop band i liked Honolulu boogie i like roll away the stone i liked all those pop hits and then when i bought the albums i i you know uh sea diver and um all those other things mama's little jewel i got more into those sort of things but i've since asked a couple of my friends who are older you know what it was about not the hoopla and it's that's exactly it why i coined the cribs as that was um when i first heard the cribs before i joined them and why i joined them really one of the one of the reasons why i was a fan anyway was um they seemed to be coming from the same place that buzzcocks had come out of and to an extent smith's x-ray specs in that it's kind of rowdy and edgy but not but still fairly well organized with an agenda but really wanting to uh, get in the ring with the corporate acts and take them on but not actually being corporate that to me is a, a street band and it's nearly always People with guitars. Yeah, I, I you know I
0: actually heard that term used by a member of Big Star to talk about where they were at, which I'm not I'm not sure it's quite. Ex- I, they of course have that song in the street, so I don't know if that's it, but maybe it is. It's it's an underdog thing.
1: Oh no, I'd say I, I'd say street. Oh, that, that's nice because I, I kind of came up with that term myself, so I'm I'm happy that's what a Big Star had used it. I'd say Big Star uh, would fall into that category as well, in their way, in that they are. Kind of outliers, but who aren't necessarily avant-garde. They're not. Um, they're not wanting to be um, obscure. They got four-minute songs. They got three and a half-minute songs.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they were unheralded. I don't know if they were in their time. I don't know. But is there is there music? I've been asking most of the guests if there's music that do, that do you listen when you listen to music? Do you do seasons? play into it like is there good fall music winter music summer music to you or is it all the same
1: it's all the same although i you know you 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 talk about memories the evening that i bought raw power which was a life-changing moment uh, well kind of thing i talked about earlier when i was like i think i'm having a moment this is definitely a moment of self-awareness i've since learned that Buddhists, i'm going you know to get about it, but it is true that Buddhist called Satori, Okay. That is a, inextricably linked with me, with me, with winter. And in fact, that that moment of winterly vibe, I lent I lent into that when the Smiths were recording The Queen Is Dead, and that's really was the impetus to help me write the music for a song called Never Had No One Ever, which I I I wanted to, to evoke that same evening of listening to the Stooges, uh, and which is why it sounds uh, quite like the song "I Need Somebody" of Raw Power. But it wasn't like, oh, I, I I want to copy "I Need Somebody." I wanted to copy the moment, and I lived on a we call co- what the Americans call the projects. So it was a sea of houses that were brick boxes built in the 1970s all uniform but all low level so i could see the sky and there was the street light right outside my window on the same level so if there was a crack in the curtains this the room was had this amber light inside it which was often very atmospheric sometimes it was a pain in the ass but there was a, so it was dark outside it was, 6 45 in the evening, seven o'clock and there's a slight amber light coming through the room. And, um, I listened to I heard the search and destroy, give me danger. I need somebody, shake appeal, penetration, all of that. Remember it like it was yesterday. And that will always be a winter's night in, uh, in the suburbs of Manchester for me. Uh, And similarly, another really important moment that I was aware was a moment when it was happening was when the Buzzcocks debut record came out and I sagged off school early to make sure I could get a copy of it. And that was a a summer's evening when I got home from school, uh, having got the album, gone into the city and got it. And I heard the guitar playing on it, particularly on the track Autonomy. I was so... Exalted, because I knew that I could already play like that, and it was one of the coolest guitar lines I'd ever heard. So, you, I, the idea of trying to be trying to attain the virtuosity of Steely Dan was just killed in a second or in three and a half minutes. Right. Um, so, I'll always associate that with with summer. But aside from just a couple of those moments, generally I think music, it, it for me, it, it's just all life, really. Music is just, you know, I'm 60 next week, so it's music is what, it's like 57 years of living, really.
0: Sure, sure. It's funny how those moments can... Uh attached to you because i actually when you were saying that was thinking i remember the day i bought raw power it was a very hot august day in minneapolis and i i connect it to a summer uh record
1: oh that's interesting yeah so it's all it's super subjective
0: yeah yeah you know um the set set the boy free the first part of it is you buying your first guitar now you have mars guitars this new book um which which shows all your guitars or i think at least a lot of them and the event i went to the other night you said writing this book was more cathartic for you than the, than the um autobiography in some way why was that is it is it easier to talk like when you're talking guitars uh
1: you know it's a good question that Craig because uh i was really not expecting any kind of catharsis from doing the guitar book I because my mind was on so many of the things. My mind was on making sure the photo shoots went well because it was hard and all, all kinds of different things. It was when I pulled out the quite early in the process, uh, uh, I had hold of the Epiphone Casino that I did How Soon Is Now on and wrote Nowhere Fast on. And then my wife found, she had, she found a picture of uh, me writing Nowhere Fast that I didn't even know she had, and that went into the book with me on the Casino um so yeah i did talk about having a good memory so it's to do with what i and probably other musicians guitar players uh particularly the relationship we have towards guitars the way we fetishize them the way we romanticize them the way we can, we have a relationship with them when we own one that we we it, it's going to sound so corny but it is true if you're looking enough, enough to get a guitar that you absolutely love, particularly as a young person, it's kind of better than a best friend <laughs> uh, um, because best friends are free anyway, you know? So there's that value monetary value to it, but you know, it's like a best friend in that you think it's going to take you to the future somewhere. And um, so you have all of that f- affection for it. That came back from holding that casino and, then the stuff that was in my mind at the time just came flooding back real quick, and that didn't happen when I wrote the autobiography. And then once I'd identified that, I was in a... This was coming back to working on the new Mars Guitars book. And what you're talking about, it was so powerful. I kind of wanted it from every guitar then. I was, I was pulling this stuff out, and I was open then to... Oh, yeah, right, okay, I remember this. And also my pal, who was uh, my guitar assistant, if you like, uh, who was helping me get all these guitars together, he was like, well, this is the one that you used in 86, Johnny, and you, that's, uh, that's the one you used on that TV show. Now, I kind of knew that anyway, but he was really enthusiastic about this. Hey, let's pull this out, and what did you use this on? And um, there was a lot of joy in it. Uh, uh, and it went right the way through the uh, late '80s, after the Smiths, easy in the '90s. That was, and one of those nights was when I remembered, for example, that Bernard Sumner used uh, my Les Paul on New Order's Regret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all you know, those kind of stories. I remember some of the Pet Shop Boys stuff that I used my blue Strat on. Uh, so it, it, you know, went right across the board, really, to the early 2000s when the. Um, My SG got stolen. Of course, that was a story that I could have put in the book anyway. But uh, who I was, how I was feeling, came back to me so strong by plugging those guitars in and playing it because they're so distinctive, uh, particularly old ones or ones that you've gigged a lot with them you know, as I say, you have a relationship with them like a a really good pal.
0: Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you earn royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android, Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Could you like sequentially put them in order without like pretty well, could you say I got this then that, then that, then that or does it, or, or does it get jumbled? I imagine you got a lot at one, probably one: No.
1: Pre- well, pretty good, except actually my, my friend Richard I was talking about because he. Got quite a few of them for me. He used to work in the record store, uh, the guitar store, rather that I used to go in, mm-hmm. and he's like a guitar kind of dealer guy, for want of a better term. So he, he, he you know, those guys are pretty nerdy anyway. So in the, t- the stuff in the two thousands, Richard was pretty good at reminding me of. But but yeah, I, I, I remembered the sequence of certainly. The first twenty odd years. Yeah, yeah,
0: you, you know the the vintage guitars, so you talk about. The other night you mentioned, you know, these were at for one point old guitars, not vintage guitars, but, you know, you're buying, there, there's also some part of it that relates to history a 59 Les Paul, a 60s telly, you know, is playing a 60s inspired song sound better on a 60s guitar? Is there anything to that kind of thing? Do you find that?
1: Well, I've got to say when I, um, when I tried, so we'll talk about really that what I was doing in the Smiths days, really, when I did want to write something that was 60s-ish, it always very, pretty quickly ended up sounding like, exactly like a 22-year-old in a Manchester band in 1985 (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Uh, It's so subjective, that idea of inspiration, which is great. And even, say, The The, for example, who we really were trying to evoke our idea of a gnarly band in an after-hours bar in Memphis or New Orleans in 1968, 69. That's who we wanted to be, really. Uh, um, there's a, there's a whole aesthetic there that Matt Johnson is, is really kind of tapping into this illicit, late night, slightly dangerous, romantic. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it it's got yeah, it's really got a kind of vibe to it, um, but. When I listen to those songs that we did in the... They they sound like they're from London. (laughs) Uh, But here's an example of it. There's a Smith song called Nowhere Fast. As I say, again, back on that casino, and there's a photograph of of me writing Nowhere Fast in the book. The casino, definitely, if you know about sonics and the way guitars sound, it really does sound like the Kinks. Mm -hmm. But because it had a whammy bar in it, and because at the time I was... I, I thought the band should be inspired by sun records. I I wrote it with like a rockabilly shuffle. So it definitely does sound vintage The, the track does sound vintage, but the band were leaning into occasionally the band were very deliberately leaning into what I would call retro, uh, influences. And so sometimes we were able to telegraph those things pretty, pretty well. Uh, there's another song on the second album called Rush on Ruffians, which uh, I I was obsessed as a little boy with the song Marie's the Name of His Latest Flame by Elvis Presley. And I, I, at the time, I thought for a band who were on the John Peel show, we were an 80s band in the NME, it, we just would be, it would make us very different and would be somewhat unfathomable if we came out sounding like Marie's the Name of the Latest Flame. Everyone was trying to sound like the Velvet Underground.
0: Sure, sure. You know, people you t- people talk about having guitars or songs. You know, guitars having songs in them, and you sort of said that you, you know, you, to sort of justify the purchase, you've gone to work and 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 said, "I'm going to write a song on this guitar because I bought it and that's what it's for." But have you ever had a guitar that was like a dud? You just couldn't get songs out of it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, you know, it just stands to reason. The lower av- averages says that because <laughs> I've I bought so many of the years some of you just weren't going to really get along with and they don't really stick around for years and years uh they're the ones that, that i've kind of passed on and are pretty good at doing that yeah if this one it's very rare though because i you know I, being a working class guy uh i still think a lot of money is a lot of money mm-hmm. I, I still think a, a, a fair amount of money is a lot of money I I can't just have something and then go. oh, Okay, that's going to be a collector's piece, or that'll be an investment, or any any shit like that. Never. If if I don't, if it doesn't feel like it's part of the family, then it, it's got to go. But yeah, that has happened. Yeah.
0: Is there is there any kind of guitar that you, that you sort of don't get along with? I mean, you're talking about casinos, SGs, sure, three thirty five. Is there anything you don't
1: any guitar any you guitar know, you I, don't like? I was in the Fen- well, Fender have got this brilliant uh, new. Uh, showroom in london it's really impressive and um they've got a bunch of different departments and i was being shown around only a few months ago and uh he brought me into the the kind of metal slash shredders room and uh, just out of curiosity I, i picked up one of these i guess it started off as a eddie van halen kind of deal and then over the years has been Worked on and worked on, and I'm sure this this is fine for, for my other guitar playing brothers and sisters. <laughs> but I I was amazed because I honestly it, it was so. My dad used to work in um, he used to dig up the roads, kind of construction. He used to, have. it was more like something that had been in the back of my dad's van than <laughs> to me than a guitar. I I just could not get anything out of it. It felt completely alien. And and what I found was quite a surprise was that it didn't sound like, uh, didn't feel like it was something I w- was going to run away with my fingers. It was so fast. It actually felt really cumbersome and weird with this scalloped fingerboard and crazy huge frets and weird shaped neck. I thought, what the heck? This is horrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, yeah. guys and girls get plenty of stuff out of that. Fair play to them. I almost admire them even more now.
0: <laughs> there's this place there's this part in set the boy free which, which kind of uh made my uh, me perk up when when you mentioned going to see a van halen cover band and i i, I don't think the van halen connected in the same way in the uk and i also feel like you've spent your career sort of undermining or pushing back on the sort of macho guitar thing that they're known for but it did get me thinking that Van Halen was a, had a well known inventive guitar player coupled with an outspoken and unconventional lead vocalist. So perhaps there's a. Um, a parallel oh, I've got to there. tell you,
1: I don't know whether I wrote about it in the book, but I met Van Halen. All of them. Oh, really? 19, all the Smiths met Van Halen. That was a, a, an amazing story. All of us <laughs> met Van Halen in their dressing room as they were about to walk out on stage in Washington in 1985 on the 5150 tour, and. Eddie Van Halen was not only a real gentleman and kind and courteous, as was Sammy Mm Hagar. And um, I'll never forget the kindness, particularly the show show towards me because I was still pretty young then and I was out on my element. I didn't, none of us wanted to be there. They were about to go on and someone from Warner Brothers just said, hey, there's this band from you've never heard of and don't care about. And they, these guys were about to go on to like 25,000 sc- screaming fans and they took the time out to come in. And we, you know, I mean, we may as well have had uh, tentacles coming out of our faces um, when they saw us. We did not look like a band to the, as they knew it. And, uh, but that was because um, year, years before, Roddy Frame from Aztec Camera, who was a fellow indie file friend of mine, same age as me. I bumped into him in London and uh, he said to me, look, you're not going to believe this, but there's a, you know, this guy, Eddie Van Halen, if you ever get the chance to go and see him, go, go and watch him play. Because he walks on with a smile and he never stopped smiling all the way through the show. So we just had a day off and someone from the record company wanted to bring us down and I said, this is crazy and this isn't, really is not such a good idea, blah, blah, blah. And we all went down and, Eddie Van Halen was amazing. I got so much, so much respect for that guy.
0: That's an amazing story. There, you know, Van Halen is part of like, you know, uh sort of these in rock history famous guitar player singer teams, you know, Richards Jagger, Paige Plant, the Edge Bono, Omar Morrissey. Um, you make a football comparison in your book, A Winger and a Center. But it doesn't seem like for a long time I can think of that kind of team and a band. And do do you think that's like guitarable music being diminished in some way, or has technology made people like more Jack of all trades?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right about technology <clears throat> making people more jack of all trades. Look, if for people who enjoy the maybe the habit or the, the hobby rather of rock culture, of course they enjoy the music as well, but like reading rock books and watching documentaries and all of this business, when you consider that Sergeant Pepper was really informed by the technology the 8-track maybe it was 4-track but you know what I mean technology and certainly Jimi Hendrix the backwards ideas and the production techniques and the Univide pedal and the wah-wah pedal etc etc then you have to go along with the idea that technology considers that uh, continues to inform the current mm-hmm. pop music, yeah, so, which it, it does, and I've uh, I often on days off on tour go into some of those music stores, the chain stores. I find them a little unwelcoming and boring and a little sterile and generic and all of that. Why change a habit of a lifetime? <laughs> and I, I walk around there, and sometimes I've been in there, and the in all honesty. I've understood why uh, a bunch of teenagers on their weekend would spend more time around the machines that make beats because they look kind of cool, they look fun, they look easy. And the truth is that if you're if you're able to pony up the and also they're, they're much much cheaper relatively than what it used to be to be able to buy an electric guitar in the sixties and seventies, eighties even. So if you and your pals are able to pony up the $245 to buy a machine that gives you all of these sounds and beats and everything, and you have the wherewithal and the musicality to learn that thing over a weekend, you're up and running in a weekend. And the problem with that, though, is that so is everybody else. So there's a whole load of things that come along with that. The democratization of music is a great idea. If You would have asked me any time in the last 30 years because of my kind of sensibilities about the making music and the the, uh, the production of music available for uh, creative people, whether it's on a laptop with Ableton or GarageBand or anything like that, make that available to everybody. The Johnny Mara 15, 25, 35, 45 would have gone. That. That's a great idea. Well, actually, the reality of it, like all things, needs a little bit of calibration because, it, it unfortunately, the it it's meant that there's now a ocean of uncurated unregulated and often just pretty crappy music out there that makes it really really hard for people who are doing doing good things to get heard that's the reality of it you know uh it's a nice idea in principle and yeah i'm all for people having a go but um that's what's happened for younger musicians. So you asked about the technology relating to that, um, archetype we have of the rock duo. I tell you, have got another thing that always gets forgotten in the, in the Lennon and McCartney, Morrissey and Ma, Page and Plant, and, the, and Nancy Wilson as well.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: You know, um, but, all of these things we're talking about, yes, so the technology has diminished the potency of um, of that classic rock uh, story. And then, of course, again, and it's all... Because, you know, the, when everything went digital and then the internet age, um, you know, I do believe... I don't know whether you've ever seen that book called Sapiens by... Um, uh, he's an amazing writer called... Uh, I'm going to get his name wrong now, but... Uh, uh, Ahari Yovel Nahari, this uh, Israeli writer, I can't believe I've forgotten his name, but it's an amazing book. But he talks about all the evolutions of humanity leading up to present day, and um, you know, so he talks about the fire age and the industrial age, the agricultural age, all these huge evolutionary steps that we've we, we've made as human beings, and it, undoubtedly we are going through another one that will be discussed in hundreds of years of time, which is the Digital information age—it's affected everything. So it affects our biology, it affects the way we are about the most basic human drives, i.e., sex, sexuality. Uh, the information age affects our politics. So sure as shit, it's going to affect the entertainment industry. Yeah, and um, and um, I'm asked about this quite a lot, but the, the way music has has it lost its potency. Well. It's it never had so much to compete with before. Now you think about soldiers, those guys out in Vietnam, the Americans, and the a big thing that was getting them through their experience was the rock, the culture being produced at home, mm-hmm. the sound of canned heat, the sound of Jimi Hendrix, the sound of the Doors and then those images you see from the 1970s juxtaposed against rock music. So rock music didn't really, really change the world, but it sure as hell was the soundtrack to it. Well, now, what, what is it? What, TikTok? Video games, uh, Sure. Probably. So it's purely because it's got all this, rock music has now got this very, very shiny, uh, you know, attention-grabbing uh, competition, the new record
0: is a, a collection of Spirit Power, and it's collection of solo records, um, which started in 2013 in with The Messenger. You mentioned the other night that NYC kind of uh, brought it. I, I was at a show in 2013. I remember it kind of blasting off. It was probably at the Bowery Ballroom. and it. But it sort of blasted off since then. You've had four records, five including this collection. When you put together a collection like this, do you look back and be like, Wow, I did. I've put a lot of work in. Are, are you just consciously aware of that? Is
1: there any? Is there any point well, of reflection? Well, well, both things are true because I am consciously aware of it because I've been a working musician since I was, I guess it was fifteen, sixteen. Uh, I wasn't getting paid very much back then, but I left school to do it, and it's part of my uh, self identity that I'm a, a you know a working musician. So I don't take a lot of holidays, but. Uh, probably because I really love and consider it a privilege to be a working musician. But both things are true because I had to listen. (laughs) The reason why when I listened to the, uh, the the compilation and I went, wow, we've done a lot of work and the album's a whole lot of bangers. There's a lot of good engaging music there. Um, It's because I, I came back from Glastonbury. I was playing with, I rejoined the Pretenders for their set at Glastonbury, and then I, I got back, so it was late on the Sunday. And there was a message uh, email from my office asking me whether I'd okayed the, the the vinyls, the test pressing, and of course, it needed to be done like yesterday. So uh, even though I got home in, in the in the late hours, I I, I quite liked the uh, assignment of having to sit and listen um, because it's something that connects me to what I started out doing in 1982. I was the person who checked the test presence. And so I had to listen to it with objectivity because I'm listening. My mind wasn't drifting off going, I remember that lyric and maybe I should have changed that line or, oh, well done, Johnny, that's a good one. I'm listening to it as a record. And um, so I, I, I texted the rest of the band in the middle of the night and just said, congratulations, we, we're a good band.
0: I would say they're a great band. A huge thanks to Johnny Marr for joining us here. That was incredible. And it's no surprise because he has a, a way of making everything awesome. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. That story of Van Halen in the Smiths meeting, that was amazing. I'm glad he told it here, because I don't think that made the book. Check out Johnny's new collection of music, Spirit Power. Check out the new book, Mars Guitars. Take a minute and realize all the things that Johnny Marr's been a part of. It's pretty mind-blowing. I really like that concept of street bands, too. I'm trying to think of other street bands. I'll Get back to you on that. Meanwhile, a few things to remind you of. Um, last call for First Night, the first night of the Hold Steady's massive night celebration next week is Wednesday, November 29th, and we'll be doing a live version of this podcast at the White Hotel in Brooklyn, New York. It'll feature my Hold Steady bandmates, as well as special guests, which is super rock and roll promoter Peter Shapiro, uh, as well as Michael Han, who's the author of the book, The Gospel of the Hold Steady. came out last year. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun and um, talk to the band. We'll talk to those guys. We'll look back at the massive night celebrations of years past Well, I was looking ahead to this year's edition. Maybe make some predictions as to what might might happen. Um, I can confidently say that this will be a really good time. You can place your bets there. Uh, Theholdsteady.net for more details. And Saturday, March 2nd in London, UK, I'll be doing a solo show at the Moth Club, and we'll be doing a live version of this podcast there in the afternoon. Come see all of it, the shows, the podcasts, whatever. Uh, The shows in the UK and Ireland are selling out, so get tickets now. See the show? See the first ever live UK recording of this podcast, That's How I Remember It? Come be a part of history. Craigfin.net for more details there. And now, huge thanks to you for listening. I really enjoy doing this, and it's awesome that so many of you are paying attention. We've got incredible guests coming up, so keep listening, and please subscribe. It helps us out. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it.